0: You're listening to episode four of the Ecology Podcast. I'm your host, Arun Dainandan, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Charles Blazier and Kyle Grant. This week, we're talking about biological productivity, plagiarism in science, and the target audience of research. So this week, we're going to be talking about energy and productivity. So just to start with a quick background as to what uh, what primary productivity and productivity in general is, as well as its role um, or the role of energy in productivity. All energy on the planet is governed by the two laws of thermodynamics. The first law states that energy can be transferred, but cannot be created or destroyed. The second law states that while energy is transferred, a portion of it will be lost as heat energy. Now, in the biological world, all energy begins its life in the sun. Solar energy arrives to Earth as light in the form of particles of energy known as photons. Some of these photons are used by plants, and these are transformed into photochemical energy through a process known as photosynthesis. This energy, combined with carbon from carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, is stored in complex carbon bonds known as carbon carbohydrates. Now, all life on planet Earth is carbon-based, and this is what we call organic. The rate at which solar energy is stored in these carbon bonds is known as primary productivity. And when we speak about primary productivity, we often refer to net primary productivity. Net primary productivity is measured as the gross primary productivity, so the total amount of light energy that the plant converts, minus the amount of energy that the plant uses itself for its own survival, and this is known as respiration. Productivity is measured in kilocalories per square meter per year, or as grams per meter squared per year. The amount of energy stored in the plant at any given time is what's known as a standing crop biomass. That's measured in grams per meter squared, and so primary productivity can also be measured as a change in standing crop biomass over time. Primary productivity increases with increasing annual temperature and rainfall, and thus areas around the equator, which receive these conditions year-round, tend to be more productive than the regions towards the poles. As such, the most productive terrestrial ecosystem is the tropical rainforest. Other factors which influence productivity are disturbances such as fires and herbivory, the age of the plants themselves, and the amount of nutrients that are available, especially nitrogen. Now, in aquatic environments, light and nutrient availability are the main factors influencing primary productivity. The limiting nutrients in these systems are nitrogen, iron, phosphorus, and uh, sometimes, I believe, magnesium. And thus the most productive aquatic ecosystems are the ones in which these nutrients are abundant, such as shallow coastal waters, coral reefs, and estuaries. The nutrients and energy in a system does not always come from the same system. So energy that's produced within the same system is what's known as autochthonous, while the energy produced outside a system is what's known as allochthonous. Allochthonous energy comes in the form of dead organic matter known as detritus. Now, this leads to two major types of food chains. There's the grazing food chain, so that's where the source of energy is plant matter, and the detrital food chain, where the source of energy is the detritus. When an organism eats something, whether that be detritus, a plant, or even another living organism, some of the energy is used for processes of survival for the organism and to generate heat. Apart from waste products, the remainder of the energy after using these survival processes is used for growth, and this is what's known as secondary production. The efficiency of this process can be quantified through a number of different metrics, such as consumption efficiency, which is the proportion of available energy being consumed, assimilation efficiency, which is the portion of energy that's used, and production efficiency, that's the portion of used energy that's stored and leads to growth. Only 10% of the energy stored in one level is converted to biomass, and that's the production efficiency at the next level, and this creates a pyramid amongst terrestrial communities where plants make up the largest part of the base of the pyramid, and herbivores and carnivores make up sequentially smaller portions higher up on this pyramid. Interestingly, this pyramid is reversed in aquatic systems, and due to the short lifespans and high reproduction of phytoplankton, uh, the number of phytoplankton in the water at any given time is much lower than the number of herbivores and carnivores that are feeding on them, and so this actually gives us an inverted pyramid. It's also important to note that due to this rapid turnover of phytoplankton, the energy itself is stored for less time um, at a single level than in land-based organisms, where energy is stored for much, much longer periods of time in uh, in trees, for example. Lastly, there are two main types of ecosystem control within these communities. There's bottom-up control, where the plant production limits the number of herbivores and thus the number of carnivores, and top-down uh, top-down. Uh, control where the number of carnivores limit the number of herbivores, and thus that controls the total number of plants in the system. So for this week, I chose a paper by it was done in Ontario, so here in Canada. Uh, it's by Ma et al. 2019. It was published in Forest Ecology and Management, and it's called Species Mixture Increases Production Partitioning to Below Ground in Natural Boreal Forest. So the link, the the authors start with saying that the link between total ecosystem diversity and primary productivity has focused on only one component of productivity, which is the above ground biomass, and also only one stage of forest development. Plants tend to move their production based on resource limitations and to maximize resource capture. These resources can be nutrients and light. Thus, production partitioning is modified with the plant's pattern of development and resource availability. Higher above-ground production, such as leaves and stems, may result from having a lot of soil nitrogen and phosphorus uh, available, while below-ground production, such as the formation of more root structures, can result from having limited water access. Species mixtures, such as natural forests, as opposed to species monocultures, such as farms, may show differences in this production partitioning because of between-species interactions, as well as due to the fact they're more structurally and environmentally complex, and they have a variety of possible resource limitations. For example, above ground partitioning may increase with limited light so that plants can grow more leaves and take advantage of as much light as possible. This can be done spatially, such as through having different layers of the canopy known as canopy stratification, or temporally, such as the seasonal variation we see in deciduous and evergreen tree species um, that are located in in the boreal, boreal environment that this study took place in. Below ground productivity partitioning might increase from having limited access to water as well as limited nutrients such as carbon, phosphorus, calcium, potassium, and magnesium. These limitations change as a group of plants known as a stand gets older and actually can be reset through disturbances like forest fires or or logging. So for this this study, the, the authors predicted that below ground production partitioning would be higher in species mixtures, so those forests, than in monocultures. They also predicted that below ground production partitioning would decrease while the magnitude of effects of mixtures on below ground partitioning, below ground production partitioning would increase with stand development. So as the stand got older. So the these authors did their research in Thunder Bay, Ontario, here in Canada. It was in a boreal forest and they used three post fire. So after fire stand age classes, these are eight years after fire, 34 years after fire and 85 years after fire. They also looked at three types of overstory, so single species uh, dominated by either Populus tremuloides, stands that had only Pinus banksiana, so pine, and then a mixture of the the two. And these stands were defined based on the composition of 80% of their stand basal area, so essentially if 80% of that forest plot was made up of pine trees, then it was considered to be a Pinus banksiana forest. If uh, 80% was made up of populus or populous tremoloides, it was considered to be uh, a populous tremoloides forest. And if it was less than 80%, it was considered to be a mixed forest. They also took soil soil profiles at depths of 30 to 50 centimeters. And they measured a number of different components. So they looked at above ground overstory and understory tree production, litter fall and understory vegetation production, fine root production, coarse root production, and then the, the nutrients that were available in the soil. Above-ground overstory was the sum of the bark, stem, branch, and foliage, the leaves, biomass. Above-ground understory production was determined using equations for small trees based on the stem discs, which is a, a slice from the of the actual stem itself. Litter fall was based on the dry weight of litter, so litter being the, the dead material that, that falls to the ground, such as leaves and, and even dead insects and plants. Um, and this was collected over the course of a little over a year. Uh, shrubs and bryophytes, such as mosses, were estimated using other equations based on the heights and stem di- diameters of these smaller trees, as well as the area coverage for, um, of these small trees to calculate the, the moss productivity. Now, interestingly, fine roots uh, were dried and weighed, while coarse roots were estimated using the same equations for those of small and large trees. So they actually looked the, the roots. Were, were calculated differently. Soil nutrients such as nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, calcium, and magnesium were estimated for the three soil layers, that's the forest floor, then 0 to 15 centimeters below ground, and then 15 to 30 centimeters below ground. An analysis was done to calculate the proportion of contribution for each value um, or production value to the total ecosystem production and the effect of the species mixture itself. Um, was calculated based on what the observed values were, so those observed production values compared to what they would have expected if the area was just a single stand, a single type of tree. What the authors found was that species mixtures increased below-ground product production, especially in the production of fine roots, and this was driven by the changes in soil nutrients that were associated with the forest stand as it aged. Species mixing had a larger effect on productivity in younger forests and not in older forests, and it actually peaked in the intermediate stages of development. Following a disturbance such as a fire, uh, competition for light was not very high, but competition for available nutrients was. As such, the younger plants put way more energy into developing these below-ground structures such as the fine roots in order to take advantage of as much nutrients as possible. As the stand got older and more litter fall accumulated and more dead organic matter made its way into the soil, the nutrients became much more available and there was less competition for the nutrients in the soil. And so the plants began to compete above ground for the available light instead. And, and so they shifted their, their productivity to the above ground um, biomass. These results were in line with the optimal partitioning theory, which states that plants increase biomass allocation above ground with increasing resource availability, as well as stand age, as well as the ontogenetic drift theory, which stated that the relative allocation of the productive plant material itself is shifted from below to above ground as the plant develops. There's a few things I, I really enjoyed about this paper. Um, so I thought it was great that they it highlights a need for this, these big picture approaches in science, because um, you know there, there's this idea that the, um, the sum is made up of its parts, but really the sum is, is made up of much more than that. And so we have to kind of decide where we draw these lines and at, at what level we, we separate these different components um, of a system that we're studying. I thought it was also very interesting that they, uh, or rather, how thoroughly they calculated the fine root productivity because they actually hand sorted and removed visible living and dead roots, these fine roots that were less than two millimeters in diameter, um, from these cores that these 30 centimeter cores that they had collected. Um, but it also raised the question of the or the role of preliminary data collection because. Because they use different methods for both the fine root and the coarse root production, m- my guess is that there was a um there was a number of studies done before this where they did try to try to calculate the biomass and they found that this was a, a better way of of collecting that or, or calculating that simply because um it it's a lot of a lot of effort to to count the um the the roots by hand. Um now for a few things that I thought could have been better. Uh, I, I thought it could have been stronger if they had led with the theoretical foundation first, so such as stating that optimal partitioning theory and the opt- ontogenetic drift theory in the introduction. Um, I thought it was also interesting that they relied heavily on the equations that they derived from previous experiments. So, this is a similar issue to what we might see in climate models, where they build models based on other models, which are based on other models. So, it, it starts to it adds questions as to the the ecological relevance to the to what we're asking and what we're answering um, I also thought it was interesting that and Kyle you you might have something to say about this as a as the resident plant expert um, it's that uh, they said the stands were allocated or rather located several kilometers apart from each other to minimize neighborhood and unknown environmental influences that might be spatially correlated. But there are two issues I had with this. It's one, the fact that the environmental influences are unknown means that it's really impossible to to judge how far apart those stands should be um, because, well, the Aspen, for example, forms one of the largest organisms on on the planet. And we also know that plants routinely share nutrients amongst themselves below ground. Uh, So I thought that it would have been stronger if they had used some method to quantify these interactions, especially in those mixed forest environments. So as, uh, as someone that's worked on populist tremuloides, Kyle, I don't know if, uh, if you want to weigh in on, weigh in on, on that or, or any of the, uh, anything else that I brought up, but, uh, what did you guys yeah. think?
1: Uh, how far did you say they uh, that they were positioned from each other?
0: It didn't actually state how far they were apart. It just said that they were several kilometers. There was no exact number.
1: Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I can't say I, uh, I can really weigh in on that, but, uh. But yeah, I mean, uh, apart from that, um, I, I I agree with you. It was, it was a cool study. Um, I like the large scale aspect of it, and um, yeah, like they're saying, most of these studies have usually been done in um, in younger younger stands and in tropical plantations. So it's cool to see this and um, have such a, a wide wide scale in this study.
2: On my end, what I found really interesting about this study is, I mean, the. Conclusions they came to in the discussion about anti- genetic drift and optimal partitioning theory. As you said, Arun, I think they they would have done better mentioning them a bit earlier in the papers, just so they have a better direction. Because even their hypothesis, um, these theories were kind of mentioned uh, indirectly by what they were expecting to find. So I don't know what you you guys think about the way they approached the the issue. Um, I feel like they narrowed down to the actual phenomenon. High- Happening a bit too late in the paper, where it would have been a bit easier for the reader to understand where the paper was going if we had understood what they were trying to show us at the beginning of the paper.
0: Yeah, I think you're. I think you, you touch upon a, an interesting thing there because it also depends on on who the the target audience is for a paper. I mean, it's it's at the end of the day, science is very much targeted, just as any other form of writing or, or art truly is, and. I guess one of one of the things that I was I was thinking when I I saw that a lot of this theoretical foundation was was uh, kind of put into the conclusion as, in the discussion as a post introduction was maybe the uh, the funding agencies or their target demographic was uh, more applied scientists or maybe more more forest ecologists. Also, given that it was published in Forest Ecology and Management, um, whereas perhaps something like uh, Trends in Ecology or um, you know there's a variety e- ecology might have might have preferred a publication where they start with the the theoretical underpinnings but i guess that really it, it really does uh bring an interesting interesting um kind of conundrum or, or or thought experiment as to what's the best way to write a paper or to follow up on that research and i mean do you guys think that this was this was written um kind of i wouldn't say appropriately i think it was well written personally Um, but do you think that it could have been written the other way? And if so, um, do you think that would also affect the, the audience kind of reception or who reads the paper?
1: Yeah, I think, um, it definitely screams of, uh, being very targeted to a specific audience. Um, I don't know if you guys noticed, um, the amount of abbreviations in the paper as well. Like, did that stand out to you guys?
2: Yes, all about, about
1: the
0: productivity yes
1: yeah it's, it's very clearly like um targeted towards a specific audience so um but yeah i think it would have been nice to to have more of a broad approach so it's it's more accessible to other people
2: but yeah arun you did bring in an interesting point about the target audience of this paper because looking at forest ecology and management this is not a topic we would tend to read about in fundamental biology work so um, that does make total sense and that's very important as well to to know what was the target audience of an article before you start reading it so you don't have expectations at the wrong place um and i will speak for myself i definitely was a bit uh, confused with all the abbreviations but knowing what would be a target audience for such an article i think i would spend a bit more time follow, looking at the jargon of the article like a and p p and b npp and itself uh all these uh net productivity uh, abbreviations that are super simple, but at first, if you don't know about them, you don't take the time to read all of them with the small characters saying under story or uh, below ground. um, Yeah, it it does get quite complicated and quite heavy to read quite quickly. Um, But yeah, I think that that's a good learning experience to not jump right into a paper sometimes, but try to see the context and who would be the potential target audience from this article.
0: I think there was a there's an interesting figure in uh, in the second page, figure one, where they actually have a have a diagram of the forest and what each uh, canopy layer or what each layer um, is called. So, for example, above ground tree production is the top, followed by understory tree layer, followed by understory vegetation production, followed by litter fall production, and then we you know below ground now it's fine root production and then coarse root production even lower than that, um, and I think it would have been interesting for this diagram to have actually included those same um, those same abbreviations because they they are while while the diagram doesn't have those abbreviations that the text uses that continuously. So yes, I think uh, I think that that I mean that one diagram would have also very much uh, communicated the type of the type of um, information that they're they're conveying. Right. So what did you guys think in terms of the the approach they took the um, or rather the amount of the amount of work they put into to calculating the fine root productivity. Do you think that there was uh, some preliminary data collection in uh, involved in the, uh, in deciding this? And, you know, from your own, from your own work and your own experience, what do you, um, how do you, how important do you feel the role of, of preliminary data collection is in, in doing science? Maybe Charlie, you want to get on that one?
2: Yeah. I mean, I was thinking what <laughs> about uh, you know, what way I can answer that question, transferring it to the work I have, I have done in science. And uh, of course, as you were mentioning earlier, I, I will not see how, <laughs> like, there must be, there must be some type of reason why they decided to measure or to to weigh the fine root differently from the coarse roots, And why did this, they went in that very old-fashioned way of counting them by hand, one by one, and drawing them first as well. It's very logistically... Uh, uh, time-consuming, as an example. Um, and yeah, I I did not follow or look at the method section very t- extensively, but I, I would definitely think that they got that method from some other papers so they can get um, relevant data for the for the audience they're looking at. Um, if they have a different technique of weighting the, weighting the fine roots versus the coarse root, and this is not applicable to any other papers, then how relevant is the data they've been collecting? So i haven't seen the other papers they've been referring to for that meth- for the methods, but I'm pretty sure that it would be a similar method that's kind of standardized between or in the field of forest management, how to weight the coarse root versus fine roots, and why one of them would be measured dry without whereas the other one would not have to be measured dry yeah it, I'm, I'm
1: sure it's, uh, it's definitely a standard procedure in the in their field um otherwise why would you go through all the uh the effort if if it hasn't been done before right
0: maybe they have a whole team of undergraduates to uh to put to work
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> very dreamful undergraduates <laughs> yeah <laughs> dream team
0: <laughs> so another i think another interesting thing was that they uh they were relied heavily on on the equations and this is kind of touching upon what you just mentioned charlie it's the idea of um, well of standing on the shoulder of giants right as as isaac newton said right. with um, with with the scientific process being that every every paper is or every finding in science whatever the field might be is always building upon the work that came before it and science is a very incremental process there's never while we might tell the stories of you know what from einstein or or even newton himself of these visionary thinkers who one day woke up even darwin you know one day woke up and and thought you know this is how it is and went out into the world and and shared their ideas and all of a sudden everyone kind of looked at it and said yeah you're right we've been wrong all along um science of course doesn't really happen like that and um so there, so there is a lot of a lot of building upon the the um the previous literature and so and and that's important that's that's a necessity for the scientific process but sometimes, I, at least my, my opinion, is that it can also affect the relevance of the, of the, the findings, or rather even the, the findings themselves might be, say, off kilter. Um, specifically, there's a number of equations here or a number of methods of productivity measurement that they used that in the paper, in the methodology, they just stated that they were derived from previous experiments um, such as the calculation of the the moss productivity it was based on previous experiments in um, actually not even I believe not even in oh no the mosses were done with another experiment they had done on the side um, which I'm not sure if that that one has been published and uh, and some of the the other uh, especially understory productivity was used using calculations from 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 previous literature that actually didn't even work on the understory literature. Um, so, what is what is your opinion here on on using the uh, the these these equations and kind of relying as heavily as they did on on them?
2: I mean, the situation is if not relying on these equations, it implies that you're making your own equations. Um, that would be, I guess, proper or to, that would be tip, like that would be a, um, reflecting only your study and. I, I just feel like the relevance of of your calculations or of the data that would emerge from these calculations would be lower than if it was some standardized ish uh, um, equation that could be applied to other species of trees elsewhere in the world. Um, as you said earlier, standing on the shoulders of giants, I think that is the point of making science, and and that that adds to the relevance of the data you'll be collecting if. You can apply this to other situations. In the tropics, as an example, where the primary productivity is a bit higher. Um you you can you we have to find these equations that are to some extent standardized or comparable from one system to the other. I don't know if I'm answering your question saying that for me it is more important to have something that is repeatable and transferable from one study to the other, rather than having your own equation that is a bit harder to apply to some other system.
1: Yeah, so I think those are good points. Um, I think another thing to consider here is maybe we can go back to this being a paper that's targeted at a very specific audience. So it could be that these equations are so widely used that um, perhaps they don't think it's necessary for them to... uh, to really explain them to the audience they're just kind of taken as as being the the way of doing things but i, I guess that that kind of feeds into the uh your question right so
0: so that could end up being a, a fairly dangerous game as uh as different components of the the ivory tower as we call it starts to to become these echo chambers um especially as as we see kind of pre-existing you know if you look not even that long ago, um, and even even in currently, actually, in some areas, biology is very much divided into the the old British system of of botany, zoology, and then everything else. Um, and uh, and and you know, you would never cross those those lines. That's it was a taboo. And now, of course, there's plenty of work that that collaborates, and, and you see this this cross fertilization of ideas um, between previously distinct. Uh, distinct fields but I think as a consequence some of these newer fields that have emerged have also had the are emerging in the same vein of they're kind of becoming these echo chambers of their own and eventually one will hope that they'll they'll get back together and and generate these new ideas um so perhaps the that that is one of the dangers that we have when we're targeting these papers um that we if if we're too if we're too broad or if we make too many assumptions about our readers and we alienate some potential collaborations and if there is such a thing as a scientific visionary perhaps that visionary will either a come out of that uh that mm-hmm. kind of um that kind of uh divide or maybe we might never never see that because they themselves uh Maybe there's some visionary thoughts that never get thought about <laughs> because there's no uh, there's no crossing of these ideas. Um, I don't know what what your your guys have, have noticed in your your graduate and even undergraduate careers in terms of segregation between the different uh, facets of biology and, and whether you know this might have a, a hand in that.
1: Well, I think it's it's just kind of human nature to wanna to categorize things, but when you're dealing with something that's so integrated like biology, um, you really can't do that because everything's you know, everything influences everything else. So, I mean that's why we're in ecology, right?
2: That's exactly why our way of communicating or of sharing our findings should be just as integrated as the system we're working in, you know. Um we have the abiotic factors and the biotic factors affecting the same variable. And we should be able to look at a physics article or some climatic model thing and be able to understand it and transfer it right away to our own system. Uh, and I think verbally, we should have the ability to use some type of the same jargon or have it accessible enough with as little abbreviation as we can um, just to make it as um, as understandable and as accessible for any reader that might have to to use it, just to understand the the factors potentially uh, that could potentially affect their own variables. So, yeah, I mean, so they, I totally agree with what you're saying.
1: Yeah, it just comes down to effective scientific communication. You want your your work to be um, as as little jargon as possible is better.
0: So similar to, I guess, the the paper itself, and, and one of the criticisms they made of the pre-existing literature is that all the focus was just on the above-ground productivity. And now, you know, this paper is, is changing the field by looking at the partitioning to the below-ground environment. Um, I suppose one could say that even within the communication of this, this whole question, it, it, that in itself is really focusing only on one aspect of biology or ecology, Rather than uh, in a, in a facet or in a manner that can be spread amongst the different fields. But then, do you think it's very? It, it is possible to have a an article communicated in a way that is accessible beyond the scope of um, you know, say, in this case, forest ecology and management.
2: I think there is. There definitely is. Um, like not to be not to repeat myself. There is there's, there's a clear target audience. Because this is a an article that is in is in forest management and it's not a fundamental research article, so it is something that will be applicable and used by a certain type of people working in the field. Um, I believe there is a way to sh- to share such findings in a more accessible way for um, the average scientist, just because they would just have to flip a little bit their uh, their explanations in the discussion, put some part of the discussion in the introduction, so we understand we have that. Co- context included before we start reading about the article i think it's just a matter of knowing who you're targeting your your paper or your findings to or your 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 yeah, you're targeting your your yes yeah, scientific communication piece to and just explaining it the way that it will be more accessible to a broader public um we always talk about the multidisciplinary approach where we can include different scientific fields in the same uh discipline to be just to have it more inclusive and to understand um how the broader um, aspects of the world f- function and again i think that it's very doable to do so but it's it's um depends again what is the purpose of the research you've been doing and where did the funding sources come from these funding sources definitely came from some uh forest management uh funding sources and that's probably why they had to shape it that way
0: so what else did you guys uh did you guys notice on the uh on the paper would you have done it differently
2: i mean Mm -hmm. differently i don't
1: know um i think uh i mean it kind of just repeating myself i mean it it seems very a very um specific thing that they're looking at so i don't know i don't know what the most effective way of doing this is and i'm i'm sure they did a, a great job it's just uh from an outsider's perspective it would be nice to have a little more um i think a little more theory in there uh especially in the intro like charlie was saying
2: i mean same for me i i believe this is a very interesting paper um i was very interested in seeing like in learning what the findings were for this article and and we we can agree that we definitely understand the underlying reasons why uh below ground productivity is a bit higher for younger stands and a bit lower for the relative productivity is a bit lower for older stems or older stands i'm sorry Uh, so we definitely do understand the article i don't think they should have written it a different way per se but for our general interest um this is probably not the best way to write an article because this is not our field and this is i mean the the interest interesting part about any journal club (coughs) is that you will be reading articles that are very far from your field and very far from your discipline or even from the university-style uh, article. Um, and But we still have to understand it and to discuss it. And that leads to a bit uh, of a less fluid conversation, yet very interesting results about an interesting topic that is relevant to the ecology world as well. So you actually,
0: you mentioned something interesting in, in terms of the way these papers are written. And so... Especially when we're we're communicating it in ways that the you know a larger audience can understand what is being um, being communicated, what research has been done, what what the goals of the experiment were, and, and what the major findings were. I think it, it, there's a there's an interesting conundrum with the idea of plagiarism in science, and plagiarism in the sense that not you know stealing someone's data and, and publishing that as your own. I mean that's, well, that's just wrong, but um, for a number of reasons, um, but plagiarism in the sense that if if let's say you're working on a on a paper and it's on it's on let's the same the same concept you know you're looking at below ground productivity maybe you're not looking at partitioning per se but you're looking at a at a different element of partitioning because as we mentioned earlier it's you know again once again this idea of standing on the shoulder of giants each finding is is incremental do you think if if you worked on it day in day out and you've just carved this paragraph, this sentence, an introductory sentence, which is really just referring to the background literature into this perfect fluid, um, you know, rose off the tongue, amazing introduction. you know, it communicates the, the background information in just the, the perfect manner. Uh, do you think that now let's say, let's say the, the person before you that, that you're citing, maybe that's what they've done. Do you think it's right then to, to use that? I mean, we have this idea that it that we should not be copying, but at the same time, if the background is the same and and if it's been written in such a such a precise manner do we should we be changing that just because it's the same or should we do we have to rewrite this because we consider this to be a, a form of plagiarism as we're taught in undergraduate and high school and and our whole lives
2: <laughs> Well, this is a very touchy question I, i'll let you start Kyle if you want. To.
1: Oh, uh, well, I was going to say um, it, I don't see why you would have the same introduction because if you're doing, um, you know, unique research, your introduction is going to need to be different depending on what you're doing. I, I don't see a, a how you could how you could in, implement the exact same introduction in, in any case. So I, I'm not sure. Maybe I'm not understanding the question. Well, I, I mean,
2: mean yeah. oh, I was just going to add, I believe um, there there is some part of in the introduction that will be similar when you want to talk about a broader problem um the specific aspects of the introduction will have to do with your project, the research you did but yes there is um, there's a context situation you want to put in, and sometimes with the number of papers that are out there, you might be able to find similar very similar topics that were studied in different species um looking at cop like yes of course you would cite the person who wrote these words, but looking at copying let's say the first two lines or first three lines of an introduction because it's exactly what you want to say um as kyle was saying i don't think it is the most necessary thing because there's no there's never one way of writing something even if it's a very efficient way there's always a more efficient way to write something based on what you'll be researching um it can be very similar it could mean the same thing but at the same time it's so matter of wording it in a way that will lead to the next sentence that will in fact lead to the final sentence of the introduction that will be specific to your topic. So I, I don't think, um, I mean, plagiarism is bad. Don't do it, kids. But I, I also don't think we need to, to um, have these exactly similar. It would be boring, too, having these exactly similar first sentences or introductory sentences to our articles because we're both looking at large mammals in as an example. As an example, you know, if know family can large mammals in a very temperate area of the world or in a very dry area of the world, the whole question is different. Yes, it will, it will be about climate change, but the effects of climate change are very different in these parts of the world. So only for these reasons that every system is different in some way, I don't think that it, it would be necessary or even relevant to have like copy-paste or extremely similar introductions.
0: Now, what if you were to be doing a, a slight addition to a previous pe- a piece of work that you published? So, for example, let's say you are the authors of this article and, you know, you looked at below ground partitioning and now you decided, OK, we're, we're going to incorporate the environmental variables, you know, the, the, but, but the underlying foundation is the same. Um, there's this idea in, in writing, you know, called kill your darlings um, and it's, it's, it's normally used in in English literature when you're, or any literature when you're writing, um, you know, a short story or another piece of work. But the idea is that, as you said, yes, you can, well, you can always make it more efficient or that's the the idea is that your writing can always become more and more efficient. You can remove the filler words. You can, you can get rid of all the extraneous, um, you know, bit of fluff that we, the, that we choose to add and, and, and really revise, you know, to use the active voice in writing. But at a certain point, if, if we have done it, if, if we followed, say, for example, the, the strunken white, you know, elements of style, the classic manual in, in writing. Um, and if we've um, and if we've done this, if we've truly gotten rid of all those filler words and now and, and we've written that and, and published and we've, we've conveyed that information. Of course, yes, not the whole introduction, in, the whole introduction cannot be copied. But the first one or first two paragraphs maybe, because we're building upon our, our previous work the current onus is on the the authors to change that simply because they've already published that previously even if it's their own or if it's the same um if if it's their own work that they're they're citing so this is i think what i what i was kind of trying to get at in terms of you know we're told not to plagiarize but what if the work is your own and what if that truly is you know as efficient as possible you know at, at what point are we you know building a, a sculpture, or let's say you know you're you're you have to you have to make this perfect cube, and now you've made the perfect cube. Well, does that necessarily mean now you can make the cube more of a cube after you've you know in in theory reach this this perfect cube?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I totally understand. It's like a template. You know, you have your template. It's there, it's framed for you, and you would be changing the template just to do it because it's been done before, even if it was by you. And the term template would just not make sense in that situation where if you have a text that, you know, like I'm, I just wrote an article and I want to write the, an article, but add some variables or or switch my explanatory variables as an example, or even my response variable, all these things can be done without having to change your introduction. I see what you mean in that sense. This is something that I, I don't think any professional in the field of science would admit to agree with. I don't think anyone would agree to say that if I write my second paper about that same topic, I would keep the same first two paragraphs because it's frowned upon to plagiarize even your own work. Um, To answer your question, I have no idea um if it's right or if it's wrong. Um, I just, for me, if you take all the filler words out and you just take the, I mean, the general idea of each paragraph and you keep it, I don't see why that would be a problem. Um, I don't know what you think, what your thoughts are about that, Kyle. But for me, it's I don't know. It's more of a neut- neutral around that idea. Not too sure how would how to act on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess it could be fine as long as you're citing where you got it from. But, um, but yeah, I mean, try submitting that to a journal. It's probably not gonna look too good. <laughs> <So> <laughs> just put everything in quotation for marks. Sure. <laughs> um, can I ask uh, want to ask a question that's kind of uh, off topic, but um, I'm just wondering in the paper why is it that maybe you could explain a bit Arun, why why is it that below ground productivity is greater in mixed stands rather than uh, monoculture stands?
0: So the I think the idea was that let me revise or, re- or review my notes.
2: I could uh, I could yeah. answer the question if you want kyle so yeah, yeah. i think one of their hypotheses about that was um, in the mixed ground let's say or in the mixed stance you might have that non-self-recognition and mm-hmm. that could act as a com- competing factor so just a let's say the root has a conscience the root sees a non-self root next to it it will grow a bit far longer just to have more nutrients and just in terms of competition that could be a reaction from the roots Right, so it's it's competition
1: for nutrient uptake between plants. Yeah, between
2: plants. Yeah. So I think that was one of their hypotheses they mentioned why in the mix around the fine mm-hmm. roots might grow a bit longer.
0: I think one of the other things that they also brought up with the the mixture is that um, they the mixtures will enhance. They, they they cited a number of authors here in in their introduction. Um, but it's that the 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 mixtures would may they may also enhance production partitioning to fine root to improve water nutrient uptake uh, via increased root density per unit soil volume. So I, I imagine that must be also, and I believe a little bit later on they state that it could also be because it's a it's a heterogeneous environment. So there's there's more more space to be filled if that makes sense. So for example, if we look at a a mixed environment versus a monoculture environment. So if we look at a, a single species and the root, the roots tend to to develop to a, a specific length. I mean, just as the plant above ground will will tend to grow, you know, you won't see a a corn that's you know, seven hundred meters tall. Um, and similarly, there, there's a certain limit to the the root root length or depth that it can grow to, but also how wide it can spread and the density that it that it can be found at. So I imagine with a mixed mixed force it's a matter of the of a, of a of spatial heterogeneity amongst the the plants themselves where there's the ability for these species to to kind of interact but also just be able to grow in those those spaces in between
1: yeah that that's interesting and so if you think of um uh, just to add on top of that the vertical stratification so um, that would allow for more uh more, more light absorption and basically more energy to put into root production as well, right? Thinking of, like, if you have a monoculture, and like you were saying, the, the corn analogy, if they're all growing at exactly the same height, well, they're getting much less, uh, uh, there's much less light absorption rather than having, you know, a mixture of different uh, tree species that are growing at different rates. You're getting a lot more uh, light in those um, extents.
2: Exactly. I mean, it would be like compared to a complementary growth. So two different trees growing at different rates would be able to receive um, no relative amounts of light. That would They would benefit. Um, I have, I'm sure it's the shorter species have a better tolerance to shade than bigger species. So if you have a, a monoculture with all these bigger species, once one big species is under another species, it won't have a chance to cope with the shade and might not be able to grow as much or even die at some point. Whereas when you have that mixed culture, you can get the much more shade-tolerant smaller species to still flourish and still grow to their uh, bigger extent or to still have that primary production they, re- they need to keep growing at, at a cons- consistent rate. So I, that's why mixing is probably the best option that situation, which makes sense too. I mean, even for the, for the interactions below ground uh, with fungi or between roots that's something else that could be um that makes it easier for these roots to grow to a longer size
0: i'm just reading through all the uh (laughs) the notes that i'd taken Mm -hmm. on the uh on the other especially in the introduction where they they did mention a lot of other um or other previous findings that um that kind of i think led to the, the conceptual uh underpinnings of, of this experiment um it's it's interesting too that they they do mention when they're talking about above ground production that they've that either themselves or other um, previous researchers have reported both um a positive like sort of an increase in production a decrease in production or no effect in, on, on production with the um with a change in diversity of, of overstory tree species. So in essence there's some, some research has shown that these mixed forests um, have no change in production above ground. And some have shown that there is a decrease in production above ground. And, um, and I think one of the things that they, they kind of assume or not rather not assume, but they, they predict might be causing that is the, um, is the, the differences in shade tolerance. And so kind of like what you were just talking about, Charlie, um, when when these plants grow and when they're you know, all of a sudden there's one towering over another, sometimes the plants don't they won't get the ideal or the optimum amount of light that they could have, but they'll still survive and they'll still be able to reproduce, maybe not at a perfect rate, but enough to to continue to the next generation. Um, but it is interesting to to think that there have been have been papers that have shown there to be, I mean, just completely different findings that the above ground production. So I'm I'm also curious, maybe if the below ground production um, is not as as set in stone.
2: Um, They said a bit earlier in the paper, or sorry, a bit later in the paper, that the below ground production can differ because some natural environments will have different uh, nutrient composition below ground than the um, artificial environments, Um, or you know where they just planted trees and or. They call it actually artificially manipulated systems, basically. And I think the soil nutrient, as an example, the soil nutrient availability will actually decrease with time in the artificially manipulated systems. And that can make a difference. And that's why maybe we see that the below ground productivity is not as set in stone as we would expect if everything was done in natural environments. Um, I think the different um, papers they were referring to, some of them have natural environments as in example and others have artificially manipulated systems I'm sorry and that can also lead to variation which makes total sense to me. Yeah it's
1: a a very good point. Um, I think another thing to consider is that maybe these studies didn't take into account uh, the below ground productivity and also we have to think of what species there are so it's easy to think that all these interactions are going to you know result in the same outcome but we have to remember that the chemical, like the chemical signaling and, and the allelopathy and everything that's going on underground is going to be vastly different depending on what species are making up that community.
2: Very true. And like, what are the carbon or the nitrogen fixers? And I was also going to ask a question about, um, what was the reason why there would be lower nitrogen in, um, or, or phosphorus, per, uh, in that matter, um, after a fire, I was confused because they mentioned that there would be less nutrients as a whole uh, in the soil after a fire but I was not entirely sure why that was the case
0: My understanding is that at least based on on th- this specific paper it's that the the area that they um, they studied in in the boreal forest in Canada it's primarily jack pine and trembling aspen which is what Populus tremuloides and and the the pinus are mm-hmm. Um in these regions, both, both of these trees are very deep rooted plants. And so, um, in these regions, there's already a limited amount of nitrogen phosphorus, and there aren't many nitrogen fixing plants that grow in these areas to begin with. And so any of the nitrogen that they get must be from primarily litter fall. So from the, the previous, um, the previous generation of plants. Uh, and so when there's a fire that comes through, it, it burns away and, and I imagine it, it gets rid of the, um, a lot of the the nitrogen that's and maybe phosphorus that's in the, in those, um, in that environment, or rather maybe it it locks it up temporarily until it it breaks down. Um, because they do say that over time, and that's what we see in those older stands is that over time, the amount of, of, um, of nitrogen increases and phosphorus increases to the point that it is no longer a a limiting factor. So that was my understanding as to the, um, the reasoning behind why, um, why they the, the the earlier stages of um, of growth are are resource or nutrient limited
1: I think uh, <clears throat> another another thing to consider is um, the carbon and nitrogen ratios so after a fire you're gonna have a huge huge amount of carbon that's being put into the soil so uh, that can throw off the ratios as well but uh, yeah no I agree with uh, agree with what Arun's saying it makes sense
2: yeah I mean that makes sense what you're saying too about the carbon carbon ratio that only the ratio itself can cause a disbalance and uh, interfere with the process of with the primary growth of the plant. Um, so yeah, that makes all sense from my undergraduate notes. has <laughs> <in, laughs> anyone taken a look at the <laughs> at the principal component analysis graph? Um, this is something I, I kind of learned about today today in stats class, and this is still uh, very confusing to look at with all this information. So it's interesting to see what it looks like, but it will take you about another 15 to 20 minutes to understand everything about uh, this graph because they have all, all these dots uh, representing the different stents, And then you have um, the, the, the lines representing um, the effect of, of, I'm trying to practice here, you see, um, <laughs> so yeah it's it's just interesting to see like how advanced these graphs are and how i mean they could talk to us even more than we think um but i haven't really taken a look at it but we can we can see that there's like uh the eight year old or the younger stance all the way to the left it's pretty a pretty good visual way of observing or, or or seeing the results they got uh, and they show in the t- in a in the table a bit later on in the paper yeah and it's interesting to look at actually you can see that the very younger the younger stands are very much different from the 34 and 85 year old stands which shows that uh, it still hasn't recovered yet from from the forest fire it would be interesting to know at what stage or at what point we can actually consider that the stand itself has recovered from a forest fire and gotten back the the normal proportion of nitrogen and phosphorus in the soil, and and even the the, the ratio of height between the two tree species, if it's a mixed uh, stand.
0: Well, actually, yeah, the the, the um, PCA, the principal components analysis, that's um, in Figure Five, is is actually very. You're right; it's very interesting in that we can see that the younger the younger trees are are almost exclusively explained by the um, again these these wonderful uh <laughs> these wonderful abbreviations um which is the coarse root production i believe right no the fine root, fine production. root
2: production yeah,
0: yeah. um and, and almost nothing else whereas the the older stands are are much more um i mean pretty much all of those other product productivity factors were um c- can be explained or c- rather those stands can be explained by those other other factors um, such as litter fall and, and coarse root Um, with the exception of, um, of the understory, which seems to not really explain anything. (laughs) Um, at, uh, I mean, any of the, these, um, these four, so it's almost like we could remove that entire component. Um, but no, you're absolutely correct. I mean, these, I imagine these kind of analyses wouldn't have been very possible, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago, um, because this is allowing us to actually compare every single point with every variable and seeing what which of these variables explains the the variation that we see um, in these stands and yeah and as we can see the the intermediate and the um, the older forest are are very similar so imagine that the the growth that occurs between that eight and 34 year mark is much 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 faster and is clearly very much dependent upon those fine root structures uh, compared to the the gap between the 34 and 85 year old plants which seem to um well they, they overlap as well so yeah definitely these 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 kind of charts are, are a good way to represent that that data um i don't know if, if kyle if you had any any thoughts on uh on how this was explained or if, if uh if you're if you're convinced as <laughs> to <laughs> the importance of fine root structures or not
1: yeah i mean it's pretty cool i think it's kind of showing that um when the tree is trying to get established initially, it's, it's very important for it to grow quickly because it has to compete for that sunlight. You don't want to be, um, you don't want to be the tree that's overcrowded by all the other trees. So I think from that 34 to, I, I guess it's, it's 84, right? The the old uh, growth category? 80, 85. 85, yeah. Between there, probably uh, that competition starts to level out a bit. And so you see less of a difference between these trees in terms of their their total uh, below ground productivity.
2: Something else I find really interesting about this graph is, um, I mean, it is very logical uh, if you if you think about it, but the other squares that represent the conifers and conifers with their pines will always make a little mat of understory uh, vegetation and uh, also litterfall. And I, I was interesting interested to see where the squares stand relative to the rest of the distribution of the, of the points in the stand so let's say for the 8 year old stand the squares seem to stand a bit higher up in the distribution of points which leads to more the understory um, variable if I believe which makes it interesting because I, I would expect the conifers to get their prior, their productivity from the litterfall a bit more than from the understory I don't know what you think or if that rings any bell for you but for me it's, I'm a bit confused or questioning i'm like interested why it is that it's not a bit more to the left side of the of each of each uh, point of like of each, each distribution of points
0: i think what's interesting is um is that clustering of the squares as you mentioned like, it is a little bit closer towards the understory um but if and and if you look at the those those um conifer stands they tend to be when they're young very, very much clustered together in terms of what is affecting them or what, what are the factors that can be, that can explain the, um, that can explain that, um, their, their, their growth, their productivity. Um, but then as we move towards those middle and, and older growth forests, we start to see more mixing amongst the, the, um, the mixed, but also the broadleaf and the conifers, so they all kind of become this, this one big grouping. So I think, um, and, and you're, you're absolutely correct so, so the, the conifers seem to be more explained at when they're younger um, by the um, by the, the understory productivity I mean it is quite quite far from the um, in terms of, of as an explanatory variable but certainly within this this um, chart we can see that it is if we had to choose one that that would be where we explained by mm-hmm. um, and we mm-hmm. see that that distinct gap between the the broadleaf and the conifer or the rather the mixed wood well, all of them—mixed wood, conifer, and broadleaf—with um, a few exceptions here and there. Whereas once we yeah, once we move towards the intermediate, at that point it's almost already completely mixed, and definitely by the time we're at the um, the older stands, um, well, actually, yeah, you're right. So the, by the older stands now it's re-clustered together. Now that I look at it again, um, so it's it seems like at the beginning there's this the the conifers are explained more a little bit more by the the understory. As it becomes an intermediate forest, they tend to mix a lot more, which might explain why we or why the, the researchers saw a an increase in productivity overall in these intermediate forests. But then as we move towards these older growth forests, then once again, it starts to, to split up and, and we see this divide between the um, between the the, the the two types of forests. Right.
1: Um,
0: so that that is my that's my interpretation of, of the um, of the graph.
2: I mean, I don't think I could top that. That was pretty uh, yeah, <laughs> elaborate. Um, and, yeah, very visually, that's what I, I really like about these graphs because it seems very complicated <laughs> at first, but after a couple of minutes or a couple of seconds of looking at it, it just all makes sense. And it's a bit easier then to, to have an idea what would be the the most important explanatory variables for each one of your, of your small group. Um, and I believe they had three groups for each um for each category, so like that, three broadleaf, three mixwood, three conifers, for each age category for the stands. So I, yeah, I think we're saying they had 27 groups. Do you think this is a okay sample size to have three replicates for each group like this?
1: You, you have to think of you three replicates, but they have three growth types. So when you multiply this out, it ends up being I think uh, 27 um, different sites, right? That's right. So that's a that's a pretty massive amount of work already. You need a, not, a lot of undergrads for that. So.
2: Lots <laughs> of motivated undergrads.
1: I'm too. not sure how practical it would be to to expand it any further. I right. guess
0: it would depend on how large these areas that they're sampling are in the first place, because they didn't mention the uh, the size of the the stands themselves. I and mean, these these stands could be you know the size of a you know a boat <laughs> or something, or the size of a house, um, yeah. or significantly larger than that. Um, but, uh, I mean, I imagine it's, it's discipline specific. So perhaps, uh, the, the, amongst the forest ecologists that they're, they're targeting, maybe that is a, uh, a, a reasonable sample size to, to infer. And I mean, it looks like these trends are, are showing themselves, especially when we look at this, this chart and it is very visual. We can see that there is these, there are these trends that are forming. and, And so I imagine that that's what allows it to be, um, at least for, for, interpretation purposes and at the end of the day this is forest ecology and management so for management purposes um they i i guess they the the editors decided that this is the this is enough to draw these conclusions from right and um there is one more one more thing we are rounding out towards the the hour now um but it, I, I noticed an interesting thing when they were talking about the ages of the stands, um, and it was that the—actually, you know what? Not the ages. It's, it's something that I was thinking of earlier. It was with the, the, the idea of these mixtures. Well, okay, so it actually it is to do with the ages and the mixtures themselves um we know from from previous you know literature in our undergraduate classes that there is a succession amongst um amongst plant species and this is something that we know that disturbance and um that disturbance such as fire will be um will kind of incentivize or rather will will drive and so one of the things that it, they they didn't quantify in this paper is how that mixed forest changed from the younger um, the younger stands to the middle stands to the older stands because my understanding here is when they looked at the the eight year, thirty four year, and eighty five years since fires, they, and they were looking at, at say or they they know the the patchwork of of when these fires took place previously, but of course there is going to be a, a selection bias because as um, as we we know about and and we can say what we want about the idea of R and K selected species and and this idea of of species that R selected species being the the ones that kind of are the first ones to um, to enter and establish an area in an area, but and they tend to be fast reproducers, but very short lived. Um, and but they're not very good competitors compared to K selected species, which tend to come in later on, but they're much more competitive and and they're able to kind of take all the the, the resources and the nutrients in the environment, and, and so kind of push away those R selected species. Um, of course, there's a number of issues with the with the idea of this this dichotomy between R and K selected species, but if we to use this as our foundation, um, I thought it was interesting that they, they didn't mention, mention this because especially with a, with a mixed forest, um, there would be a change in the, in the species composition um, of this environment from the younger to the older stands. Um, and this would affect the nutrients. So I don't know if, if you guys had any thoughts on that. If, if you noticed that when you were, when you were doing your, uh, when you were going through it the first time around and, um, what what kind of consequences this might have for the interpretation of the data
1: yeah so so the species composition is still eighty percent um pine and populous right even even throughout this, but I guess what would be changing would be more the uh that other twenty percent right and um of course maybe the understory so uh, I agree I think they they probably should have done some kind of uh They should should have investigated how the diversity changed um, going through these uh, growth patterns.
2: I mean, talking earlier about um, other variables that could affect um, the productivity of these stands, um, it's interesting to know the relative abundance of each species. I know it will be logistically very tough to measure that. But at the same time, it is definitely relevant to know how much, because a mixed... mixed, um, Stands would have less than eighty percent of one species, but it doesn't tell us if it has seventy-four or three percent of that species. You know, or I mean, three percent. No, seventy-four percent, or let's say twenty. I don't know, thirty-five percent of that species, which does definitely make a difference in the success of that species and also the interactions between the two. Uh, so that there is a bit of like lost information there. About how how these different stands uh, talk about the mixed stands, how these different stands are are behaving differently, and that could also explain some variability in our in the data. If we don't know what was actually the relative abundance of each uh, of each each stand, and maybe that's not a question they wanted to answer because they're not doing this for uh, informational purposes, but more for applied purposes. Um, but from a ecology just in a a university perspective wanting to know the true effects of each variable, I think it would be pertinent to add the relative abundance of each species per stand even if it's not repeated um, as much at least we could use them as extra variables to be able to explain for the different productivity that we can observe So I think that's a good point that you bring up a good point that you bring up but I did not think about that until now that the abundance can change through time because of the R versus K selected species.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's a great point. I I didn't even think about there being variation between the two um, the two study uh, species. But yeah.
0: Well, that's uh, things to think about when we're designing when Kyle's designing projects
2: with his trees. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
0: so, is there uh, anything else you guys uh, you want to add? Some some last uh, last minute ideas? Some you know amazing crazy thoughts about this paper.
2: <laughs> I mean, I would not qualify it as amazing or crazy, but, but I would say that this was an interesting paper to read, despite not being exactly uh, in our field. But at the same time, it's it's good to know what the target audience is before approaching or tackling a paper. Because if I had known that it was for forest ecology and management, a field that I'm not much of an expert in, I would probably have taken my time a bit more to read the article i read it. I would have read it maybe three times instead of two, and and I would probably have gotten used to the jargon a bit earlier before tackling the issue and actually taking notes. So yeah, that's a take-home message for me.
1: Um, yeah, I think um, one thing to, to think about is um how they've kind of cited this difference in productivity that's occurring between these different um communities of of mixed and monocultures Um, and they compare it to the previous literature. They talk about how, you know, we have these different, different examples where sometimes there's an increase, sometimes there's a decrease, sometimes it's the same, but uh, I I don't think we can treat uh, communities as as homogenous. They're, they're all different. So it's really important to understand what species are actually making up the community before we go and try to um,
2: explain trends in productivity, for example.